You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. It's good to see everyone. We have yet another opportunity to gather together around the Word of God. So let me invite you to turn with me to our text for this morning, which is Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Amos chapter 4 verses 1 through 13. If you want to use one of those Black Pew Bibles, you can find this text right around page 652 in the Old Testament. Well, as we are approaching what kind of feels like the end of summer so quickly, you know, I I can't help but feel as one of your pastor's gratitude for so many ways that God has worked in the life of our church He's continued to work through really hard seasons like we've just gone through, and he promises to keep on working, and we certainly are grateful for that and the many ways that God continues to bless us. As as we kind of inching along toward 10 years, 10 years as a church, looking back upon all the ways that God has worked. I don't know if you have ever thought about this much, but I have lately just how busy is God. How busy is he? You know, the Bible says that God neither sleeps nor slumbers. He is always working. Can you imagine what that would be like, how much you and I could get done if we didn't have to sleep? Can you imagine how much we could get done, how busy we could be if we had divine busyness that that was continually propelling us forward and all of the ambitions of life, it's, it's really amazing to think about how busy God is every day. And then it's no surprise that people, his creatures who are made in his image, are also quite busy. You're busy, are you not? You probably feel that probably relentless feeling of busyness like I do so often. You, you even have a hard time, like me, carving out a little bit of time to rest or pause. You, you don't get enough sleep or busy, busy, busy on top of all the normal kind of daily busyness of putting food on tables and changing diapers and cutting the grass. We have all of these other ambitions. It, it's, it's also amazing. It's amazing just how busy people can be. On top of all of that, think about as you look around our world, that everyone is chasing dreams, building families, shooting rockets to the moon, running for office. I was on Instagram the other day, and I saw someone post one short video of him throwing a Wii disc across the room and getting it to land right in the, right in the platform. And as I watched that, I thought, How long has he been sitting there throwing that disc? Hours, tens of hours. It really does say something about our busyness. It's been like this from the beginning. God and his creatures, humans, have been busy every day. In the very beginning, we were busy working at the same purposes. But then, when the fall happened... When our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God in the garden and we were all plunged under the curse of sin, something fundamental happened inside of us. The place of our busyness, our hearts, 
was radically forever changed. The direction of our hearts, the purposes of our hearts, our motives, our interests, our ambitions suddenly became unlike God's. Now, it is a work of real common grace throughout the world that that in spite of that sin in every single human heart, that still there is this relentless busyness for a number of good things. But today, as we come to the next text in Amos, we have an opportunity to look into the fallen heart of human beings to see just what is different and to see man in his busyness at his worst. And our prayer is that God would would use his word to enlighten us and help us to better understand our own hearts in the midst of daily life because we have remaining sin, even as Christians, those of us who are here and we trust in Christ by by grace alone, through faith alone, we, we listen to his word, yet still there's sin in our hearts that, that tempts us and draws us in other directions, other motives, other purposes in our lives. It drives quite a bit of our busyness. And so we pray that God would shine his light into our hearts, help us better understand this so that we can grow as always to become more like him. Because I hope that we all agree that there's nothing better than becoming like him. This morning, we're going to consider from this text the busyness of God and man. We're going to do that by looking first at two ways that human beings under the fall are busy, the most dangerous ways. And then third, we're going to see something startling And it is, again, about the busyness of God, but to see what he is busy doing when we are busy sinning. So let's start first and notice this in just the first three verses of Amos chapter 4. Remember, we're talking about the fallen heart at its worst shows us that fallen men are busy first pleasing themselves. The bad news of Israel that we've been reading about since the beginning of the book of Amos, as Amos is declaring judgment, discipline, punishment upon the chosen people of God, the nation of Israel, because they have become like the nations around them in many ways, continues here, but here we get a little more insight into their ungodly lifestyle. Amos continues to unpack this picture as God is revealing to him over and over again the words that he is to proclaim and those which are recorded for us here in the Bible. Verse 1 of Amos chapter 4 begins with a call. And this call is an important call. It's a call to listen. It's a call to listen up and to hear, as it says, hear this word. Now, what we find right after this is some unfavorable name calling. You know, you've probably felt this as we've been in the book of Amos, that that there's quite a bit of it that's hard to read. It's hard to, to to, to reconcile how... The God who so greatly loves us and showers us with grace and mercy can hear then say the kinds of things that he is saying. 
but he calls us to listen. He calls them to listen and hear this word. And he says this, you cows of Bashan. Now it's unclear exactly what this title or name means for those that he is addressing, but it's possible from the context that this is in reference to particular women who called themselves as disciples of a cult, a cult that mixed the worship of Yahweh with a false god, Baal. This place called Bashan was a, was a fertile, fertile area. So all of the cattle in Bashan were fully fed. They were fully satisfied, abundantly cared for. And he uses this reference to them as those who were not worshiping the true God and yet were reveling in their fullness. He says, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria. Now, if we really want to understand exactly what is going on in the heart of their lifestyle, as we read about last week and we continue this week, we really ought to begin with the end of verse 1 because it will, it will shed some light on what the real problem is, what the real condition of their hearts is. At the end of verse 1, you probably see words similar to these. Say to their, uh, speaking to the cows of Bashan, they are those who say to their husbands, bring now that we may drink. There were women who were ruled by their desire for wealth and ease, along with the men. And what they were doing was pressuring the men to keep going out despite all that they had, despite all of the loot that we read about previously that was stored up in the citadels, to go out and get more and more and more. These who were in this fertile region, who were filled to the full, abundantly, that simply was not enough. And this call to go out so that we may drink and drink and drink is what then led to what we read about here in the beginning of verse 1. And this is the way that they were treating, the way that they were mistreating the weaker around them, the way that they were taking advantage of others around them so that they could fill their thirsty lust for more. You cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who, and then we read about two things. Number one, who exploit the poor. Having been filled abundantly, still having a lustful thirst for more and more, more ease, more sensuality, more wealth, more advantage, are going out over and over again. And what are they doing? Where are they finding it? They're exploiting the poor. This word poor is one that is obvious to us in English, but here it has even richer meaning. It means that, that people are scanty in their provisions. These are people who are helpless. They're powerless. They're even lacking the necessities of life. And they are being exploited. 
They're being exploited for self-pleasing gain. Out of that cry of their hearts that was, go out and bring back more so that we may drink. Self-pleasing at every step. But not only exploiting the poor, but the other thing you see is oppressing the needy. It's literally to smash up, to abuse, to crush the needy. This is what the people of God, this is what the people of God were busy doing. I hate, I hate bullies. I hate bullying of every kind. When stronger people take advantage of smaller, weaker people, I hate it. You probably hate it too. In an attempt to explain such bullying down through the years, as, as I have heard different people talk about why that is such a problem in schools and neighborhoods and even among adults, why is that such a problem? I often hear, I often hear this excuse or this reason that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. That's used as a, as a way of trying to explain why one person, stronger, bigger, superior, would bully or exploit or crush or take advantage of a weaker person. It's the idea that they're doing that because someone else has hurt them and then they hurt them. But friends, I have to tell you, that is not true. That's not the view that God has told us to have. It's not the view of Scripture because that view puts the bully in the place of victimhood. It takes the bully and makes the bully no longer responsible. But the Bible never does that. But rather, what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us plainly that sinful people hurt people. Sinful people bully people. It's not because of something in their environment. It's not because of something that's happened to them or the way that they have been treated or something that's been modeled for them. Those are merely influences, but the real source, the real source is where? It's not outside of us. It's not outside of them. It's inside of them. That's what you hear when you read about these exploitations, about this crushing, about this calling to bring now that we may drink. They were self-concerned in exploiting others for their own gain, concerned only about what they had, about their inventory and how it could grow. They're self-important. They're not concerned about anyone else and, and their place in the world or how they need to be uplifted and cared for and helped, but rather crushed them in their self-importance. But most of all, they're self-willed. Because all of these kinds of behaviors, they come from within. You can see from this text that God does not think that it is the result of victimhood. He doesn't give anyone a pass for the way that they treat other people because someone else has done this or that to them. He certainly understands. He certainly has compassion. But those are mere circumstances. Those are things that merely create an occasion for how someone will live. And you see it in the very serious words that are spoken next in verse 2. Listen to this. The Lord God has sworn 
by his holiness. It doesn't say the Lord God says. It's not just mere talk that the Lord is making. He's using an oath. This is ratcheting up the intensity of his of his disfavor with this kind of living, this kind of believing and desiring and purpose in the heart. He swears by his holiness, by his own character. He says, he swears by his own holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. Now, this language here for meat hooks and fish hooks, it doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible. And so it's hard for for scholars to determine exactly what does that mean? Where does that come from? The only sense that can be made is that these are hooks that are either used to to hold captives together, more importantly, to discard of, I know this is gruesome, to discard of corpses. Even as we continue reading, you will go out through holes in the walls. It's the picture that they're, they're walls of protection. These cows of Bashan with meat hooks and fish hooks will be discarded and pulled through the holes in the walls, one in front of the other. And then even goes further to say, and you will be hurled to Harmon. Now that's another word that, that doesn't show up. This place called Harmon, nobody knows where that is. But looking back at the language that's used, the closest word to it is that of a garbage heap. It's a dung heap. You're getting the picture. You're getting the picture of God's absolute disfavor with the oppression and the crushing and the exploiting of the needy by those who are abundantly filled. That their fate will be even worse than the fate of those who are oppressed. It doesn't say that that's what happened to those who are oppressed. Yes, they were exploited. Yes, they were crushed. They were stolen from. They were taken advantage of. But they weren't carried away with meat hooks and fish hooks. God swears by his holiness that this will happen. You're getting a glimpse as we try to do in every text of scripture into a a glimpse of, of the heart of Christ, of the heart of God. We must ask the question when you see In this account, God's people acting this way toward those who are needy, those who are helpless. You have to ask the question, how does God think about those people? Because clearly he doesn't think this way about those people. Surely he doesn't doesn't condone this way of treating them among his people. Let me give you two quick passages that show us the heart of God toward these who are being oppressed. Psalm 41 Blessed is the one who considers the helpless. The Lord will save him on a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he will be called blessed upon the earth. And do not turn him over to the desire of his enemies. And then Psalm 113, which you heard in full earlier, hear just this little bit. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. He doesn't crush and oppress and exploit. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. God is busy 
and he is busy uplifting those who are being crushed here in this text. He often is even using this very poverty, this neediness, in order to bring people to himself. You may have found that that was true in your life. And I'm not just talking about material neediness, but spiritual neediness. He uses a real sense of your spiritual poverty to bring you to himself. In fact, that's the only way that you can come to him. You cannot come to him if you think you've got it all together. You only come to him when you feel your need. Therefore, it makes this text, it makes this way of living and thinking and acting so much more atrocious. Because instead of oppressing and exploiting and taking advantage, they could be beckoning to come to the God who fills, come to the God who cares, come to the God who lifts up. And that's what we want to do as we use this text in our hearts as a church. We want to do this. We want to cultivate a heart for those who are needy. Neediness of of any kind, poverty of any kind, we want to cultivate a heart that sees the opportunity to bring Christ, to enter the world of other people, other people who seem to be, seem to be, beneath in one way or another, who are helpless and struggling, we have such an opportunity to bring them grace and truth and mercy from God himself that we would be busy in the way that God is busy. And hopefully as we see the way that God feels about this busyness with pleasing ourselves apart from him, totally different than finding our gladness and our happiness in Christ and pursuing more and more his face and our delight in him. This is self-pleasure that's disconnected from him, living in ways that he doesn't live, doing things that he doesn't command, wanting things that he doesn't desire. Fallen men are busy in their fallenness. That sounds bad, doesn't it? What we've read so far, we could stop there and just sit in kind of the the shock of, of what's going on, of the seriousness of the situation. But wait, there's always more. Just as we've seen that the outward display of sin comes from the inner influence of sinful hearts, I want you to see this next. It's the second way this morning that the fallen heart or fallen men and women are busy. It's the the busyness that fuels the pleasing of self. And this is that fallen men are not only busy pleasing themselves, but fallen men are busy often feigning worship, which much to our maybe surprise, we find going on among these people who have been so richly, tenderly cared for by a God of mercy, yet exploiting the poor, pressing the needy, thirsting for more, and at the heart of it all, feigning worship. Now in verses four and five, next in our text, you're going to see something striking and you're going to see something dangerous. And it simply is sarcasm. It's divine sarcasm. 
The sarcasm among us can be funny. We joke. Some people have a sarcastic personality. Sometimes when it's taken too far, it can become offensive, hurtful. But divine sarcasm, divine sarcasm is downright dangerous. In verse 4, we have another call. The first call was the call to hear. The next call was a call to worship, following the normal kind of pattern in which a priest would call people to the place of worship. There would be this call to enter, and that's what we see in verse 4. Do you see it in your copy of God's word? Enter Bethel, Bethel, and Gilgal. These were two places that were consecrated places of worship. They picture a kind of place where you would go for a pilgrimage. This is a place where you would go to to consecrate your life. It would be a place where you would go to worship and sacrifice at this time. It's a place where you would go to connect with God. But notice what incredible thing is said here. The call to worship is the opposite. To these people... The call to worship is reversed. He says, enter Bethel and do wrong. In Gilgal, multiply wrongdoing. In other words, come to the place of worship and sin. Come to this place of worship and sin even more. You hear that. You hear it's divine sarcasm. It's a way, it's not a joke, it's a way of pointing out what was really going on in their hearts, pointing out God's ultimate disfavor with them. And it was that they were feigning worship. Notice what he says to them. He, he tells them, come to the place of worship. The sarcasm continues in verse four, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thanksgiving offering also from that which is leavened and proclaim voluntary or free will offerings. Make them known. Now the key to understanding this sarcasm here and the key to understanding exactly what was going wrong in their hearts is to see this. The rituals that are mentioned, the sacrifices that are brought every morning, the tithes every three days, the thanksgiving offering, the free will offering, the rituals were right, but the hearts were wrong. Every morning, every three days, thanksgiving, free will, but what were they doing? They were coming and bringing their sacrifices. They were bringing their offerings but they were using this spirituality. They were using this, this feigned false worship that looked good on the outside, but was rotten on the inside as a cover for darkness. It's not, it's not sincere worship. It's just going through the motions. But if you know about the sacrifices of the old covenant, among the people of Israel, you notice that something's missing. When you read about every morning and three days and Thanksgiving offering and free will offering, you notice that something's missing. The sin offering is missing. They're feigning worship. They're not coming to be consecrated. They feel no need to be consecrated. They're coming just to keep the facade. 
They're coming to keep the cover for their darkness. This is how the people of God, this is how the people of God were busy. They were busy in fake worship, not real worship. Worship that was insincere. For a long time, I've, I've heard over and over again a, uh, an explanation or an origin of that word, sincere. I heard it, I've, I usually heard it in churches. Um, and uh, it's actually been around since the 1600s. It's been shared thousands and thousands of times. And the first time that I heard it, it just, man, it just really helped me understand what it means to be sincere. And the illustration of the picture of the origin goes like this. It's, it's believed that there were uh, workers. They would be working with pottery or they might be working with fine metals. And if their craftsmanship was shoddy, then those metals or those pottery would become cracked and you would see that it wasn't very good work. It wasn't worth the money that they were charging. And so in order to fix this, they would melt wax and run it down inside the cracks exactly the same color as the pottery or the metals. And then they would, they would sand it off so it looked very smooth and filled in all the cracks. And so then I heard uh, over and over again that the word sincere means without wax. But then as I got a little older and I was doing my own preaching and want to look around and see if I've got something right. I try to make sure that I have things right. I found something astounding to me. That's not true. That's not the origin of the word. That doesn't mean anything like that, but it sure does sound good. And how ironic, how ironic that the word sincere that we've been talking about for so long, and you've probably even heard the story that I just told about it, is insincere, that it's not true. And yet, what a fantastic picture it is. Whatever you want to call it, whatever word you want to put on it, hypocrisy, insincerity, that is exactly what is happening in this text. Shoddy worship, filled up, sanded over, painted up so that it would look like the real thing, but it wasn't. This is, make no mistake, this is the height of hypocrisy. You cannot have any greater hypocrisy than this right here. Why? Because it's one thing. It's one thing to be a hypocrite among other human beings. You may fool other people around you. They may have fooled each other and other people around them but they're not fooling God. God who has perfect eyesight and perfect hearing, he knows every thought of your heart before you even think it. Who do they think they're fooling? The all-seeing God of the universe knows exactly what they're doing. And boy, it has been over this time a real display of mercy and patience that God in the height of their hypocrisy did not just snuff them out but yet they were feigning worship. This is what God had against them. This is what was fueling the way they were treating people around them because they had a cover for their sin and it was the ugliest of all covers. You know, there's a New Testament counterpart to this as well. That's why it's such an important truth. 
important truth for us to get a hold of because it doesn't just come up in one passage. It doesn't just come up in one part of the Bible, the older part that's, you know, we've, we've come along since then. No, it's the New Testament, there's a counterpart. Jesus talks about the very same thing among the very same people in Matthew 6. This will be familiar to you, and it's exactly what was happening in Amos 4. Listen, and when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they will be seen by people. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's the very same thing. It's feigned worship. There's an Old Testament version that we just read in Amos 4. There's a New Testament version that we read in Matthew 6. And you can be quite sure that there is a modern version even now, even even among us, even in my heart. I battle this just like you must battle this. What are we talking about? Well, we can take a couple examples. Sometimes Sometimes it's an intentional thing. Sometimes it's intentional when we intentionally present ourselves in kind of a better spiritual light than other people. It might go like this. Someone comes to you uh, concerned about sin in their life. They come to you and they admit that they're really struggling with this or that. But instead... Instead of saying, I'm right there with you. I'm going to walk with you. We're going to be together. I struggle too. And acknowledging that before them and before God, what happens? You pretend as though you don't know anything about that. Wow, that's really rough. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that you're doing that. I'm going to, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to help you. You see, that's different. That, that's feigning it. Because anytime that somebody comes to you and they say, I'm really struggling with this sin or that sin or this, this trouble or this habit, you are too. Might not be the exact same thing, but you are just as needy. I'm just as needy. We put up the facade, don't we? In every church, including ours, around the world, right now, if it's Sunday morning, the church house is very much full of facades. Putting up facades, putting on little masks that will help us get through. It's akin to this feigned worship here. Sometimes, sometimes it happens in unintentionally. Sometimes it happens unintentionally in the morning when you, you get up and you, you sit before your Bible, you just go through the motions. I just go through the motions. We, we read it. We check off the chapters we were supposed to read. We pray the thing we're supposed to pray. We get through the list. We're out the door. We're on our way. That's not sincere, is it? I know that's not sincere. And I say, God, please forgive me. Help me focus. Help me focus on you. Sometimes it happens on Sunday morning. Sometimes it happens when the words are on the screen. 
I'm kind of mumbling the words along, but I'm not giving any real thought to them. They're not really penetrating my heart. They're not, they're not drawing me closer to Christ because I've got my mind on these other things. I've got my heart going to three o'clock and something else is going to happen. I've got my mind on work this week. It's the same kind of thing. It's insincere. Therefore, we want to be cultivating a heart for sincere worship of God. That will fuel our sincere care for other people, concern for those who are needy in whatever way. So that's really the second use of our text this morning is that, cultivate a heart for sincere worship of God. In particular, try to make the outside match the inside or vice versa may be the the case for you, that the inside would match the outside. These are challenging things. But God has make, made us busy creatures, so we want to be busy at this. Now, we've seen so far that fallen men are very busy in the fallen ways. Here, in this text of oppression and false worship, we still have to answer that other question this morning. What is God busy with? And what I want you to see here is that God is busy calling men and women to return. God is busy calling men to return. And oh, how busy is he at calling for a return to himself? We're going to read the next uh, few verses going down to verse 13 before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But I want to show you first what you're going to hear, and then and then it will make much more sense as we read it. And we pray God will really drive it into our hearts, help us see his heart for, for our return, for the return of people to him. What you're going to see is his busyness is at work calling people to return in a variety of different ways. Here, among these of his people, he is calling them to return by leveraging certain consequences against them. In verse 6, we'll read that he withheld food by causing a famine, and yet they did not return to him. In verses 7 and 8, he withheld rain to cause a a literal thirst, yet still they did not return to him. In verse 9, he destroys their crops with wind and mildew and pests, and yet they did not return to him. He even took lives through those warring invaders that we've been reading about in verses 10 and 11, and yet they did not return to him. Let's read that. You can follow along in your heart as I read verses 6 through 12. He says, but I gave you also a cleanness of teeth. Nothing is going across your teeth. They're clean. You're hungry. In all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me declares the Lord. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city, but on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the part not rained on would dry up. So the people of two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with scorching wind and mildew. The caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, 
declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you as in Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a dog snatched from a fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Wow. He is so busy at work. He is like a boxer, continually pummeling his opponent in order to win the fight, and yet the opponent's stiff neck just keeps standing in, keeps getting up, won't go down. Now, in boxing, that may be honorable, but with God, that is folly and shame that we would not return to him in moments like this. But here at the end, listen to this. In verse 12, there are striking, striking words, alarming words. Therefore, so I will do to you, Israel, because I will do this to you. Listen to this. Prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God, Israel, for behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to a person what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of armies is his name. He creates visible and invisible things. He knows all of your thoughts. He makes the sun rise and fall. He walks on the heights of the world. He is the God of armies, and he's calling people to return to him. And yet they won't. This could be what you need to hear. It could be that you need to return to the Lord. It may be that you need to come to the Lord first and foremost by faith in Christ to become a Christian. That you would come to know him and walk with him and you would become serious about him. Not insincere, not fake it till you make it, real belief in Christ. And then it could also be that you need to return. And you see all of these things, all of these ways that God is working in your life, how busy he is calling you to return. That's exactly what you should do as quickly as you can. And it's a wonderful Sunday for us to be talking about this because we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because you're getting here another picture of God's busyness, the ultimate work to bring people to himself, the life, death, and resurrection of his son. That his grace in Christ is irresistible, calling people to himself. That is what the death and resurrection of Christ is all about. It is a call. It is, a, as we'll hear when we celebrate it, it is a proclamation that others should come to Christ and keep coming until he comes again. Therefore, we ought to cultivate and we want to do this as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, a heart that returns to God again and again and again by grace, by knowing what Christ has done for us, that we would take him seriously, that we would be sincere in our worship as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. We invite you at this time, if you're a believer in Christ, 
for you to join in taking the Lord's Supper with us. We'll get some instructions about that in a moment. But we invite you, if you're a believer, to take part in this with us. If not, we pray that this would be a morning for you to return to the Lord first. And then you'd be in a good place to take the Lord's Supper because he belongs to you then. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, though, it is an opportunity in however small or large a way for us to, for us to return to him. It may be that you were convicted when you heard about uh, reading the words, not really paying attention. Or opening your Bible and just kind of checking it off and I did the thing, I did the Christian stuff. Maybe today is the opportunity you should take the Lord's Supper for God to minister his grace to you and you should ask him to do that. Everyone here should ask him to do that today. God, as I take the Lord's Supper today, please minister your grace to me. Make the Lord's Supper a means of grace to remind me of how much you love me, of what you've given for me, your very son, and that you will, you will always take care of me. You will always love me. Draw me close to you. That's what you should pray. And then pray this. Oh God, please show me where is my facade? Is it over here? In what way am I kind of feigning my worship? I'm not totally sincere with you or, or other people. God, help me see it and please change it in me. That's what you should pray this morning. This is an opportunity. And this is one of those big occasions where it's so easy to sit and not think about anything. Eat the bread, drink the juice. Done, did it, and give very little thought to exactly what it means. But that's not what we want. We want this to be a, a high and holy moment that we would engage with the Lord, that we would draw near, that we would enter in with him, and that we take the Lord's Supper this morning. I'm going to pray for us as we prepare, and then Pastor Kevin will come up and begin dismissing rows as we have normally as we take the Lord's Supper together this morning. Our Father, all we give you thanks because you're full of grace and mercy. We give you thanks that you are a God who is busy at work and in Christ you are busy every day showering us with your spiritual help. You continue to comfort us and to give us hope. You continue to call us back to yourself and God, we pray that this morning would be a morning about return. That those who need to come to Christ first and foremost, this would be the day of their conversion, that you would change their hearts. They would cry out to you they begin walking with you, with us. And we pray for others that this will be an opportunity for us to really consider the sincerity of our relationship with you, the sincerity of our worship of you, our, our representation of you in the world and in our church, and that we would become humble and honest about our great need for you even in this moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.